This is Profiles in Risk. Hosted by Nick Lamparelli. Every week, we interview those who risk life, limb, fortunes, career, and reputation, and those who work behind the scenes who look to protect and enlighten us about risk. You can find the show notes and other insurance-related content at insnerds.com. That's I-N-S-N-E-R-D-S dot com. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Profiles in Risk. I'm your host, Nick Lamparelli. Today, I am pleased to introduce Avalon Fisher. Avalon is a senior data analyst for commercial lines at a major U.S. carrier and is also a program development manager for women in data. Avalon, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, I, I wanted you on the show because you wrote an article on LinkedIn that really stood out. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the soft skills. And you wrote an article about, about stand-up comedy uh, as an insurance professional and how you, the process of going through stand-up comedy actually helped you become better, uh, a better professional, but better at data, data analytics, the actual job that you do. So I, I, I wanted to kind of... Uh, you know, educate my audience about what you learned and what you went through. Uh, so first off, uh, what, what made you decide to do stand-up? Well, I really loved comedy my whole life. I remember as a child watching the movie Dumb and Dumber, and me and my dad, we could recite every line of the movie pretty much the whole way through. And as a kid, you know, I was pretty heavily bullied. And I think like a lot of comedians who were bullied – you kind of develop this humor muscle in order to make people laugh and make people like you and feel like you're accepted and you belong. I had started doing Toastmasters outside of school and completed my competent communicator. And I even did a humorous speech contest, um, an area contest, and I won that contest. And it kind of made me realize, hey, maybe I could pursue the comedy thing and uh, our Toastmasters club actually kind of closed, and I decided that was my opportunity to kind of break into something else, and so I decided to try stand-up comedy. So your first gig, first of all, um, so you're saying there's a chance, Great, greatest line ever, <laughs> most usable line in almost any particular circumstance, so great, great, <laughs> great movie. So the, the first time you're preparing... How nervous were you? I was pretty nervous. Um, you know, it's one thing to make your friends laugh or your family laugh. You know, you know them. They know you. Uh, you can play into who they are and their sense of humor. Uh, and they might just be laughing to be polite um, because they're your friend or your family. But with a crowd of random strangers, it's a completely different story. You know really nothing about them to play into that. You don't know how far is too far or what's too safe. And so it's really different. It actually was an interesting experiment and an adjustment, learning how to perform in front of an audience you don't know and still be funny. How did you prepare? So 
I actually found out about a comedy studio here in Sacramento, the SAC Comedy Spot. Um, they have a whole range of comedy classes from stand-up, improv, uh, you name it, really. And I decided to sign up in January. Um, I believe this was 2016. My brain's kind of blurry. Um, I guess I was having like a new year, new me moment. And I guess that new me was going to be a comedian. Um, <laughs> but the class was awesome. It was about eight weeks long. And we basically started out creating a sketch that we wanted to spend the whole class building and refining uh, and getting feedback from our classmates. We would basically get up and perform and find out what worked, what didn't work. And your classmates would help you like dig into things. They would say, you know, that sounds hilarious. Like, what if you took that a, a step further? Or, you know, I'm not sure how that joke's gonna play out. Or I think that joke is a little, it's been done before. Because most of comedy is a mixture of real things that happened and things that were made up, um, if you know comedians. And I try to stick mostly biographical because there's a huge stigma in the comedy industry about ripping off people's work even if it's accidental you might have heard there's like numerous comedians every now and then that'll get in the spotlight in the media being accused of um, not having original jokes and uh, it can kind of ruin your career even if you do it accidentally because you could have watched a comedy special on Netflix like two years ago and forgot that that's where you heard a joke and as you're writing, it comes to you and you don't remember that you heard it somewhere. So I tried to stick mainly biographical. And the story I chose to use for my class, my first routine was about going with my mom back to her hometown, which is Freeborn, Minnesota. It's this tiny town and there's literally nothing but a bar. And it was my first time going back of like legal drinking age. and the experience of having your mom kind of show you off to everyone she went to high school with and like having your grandma basically as your wing woman. And, you know, I felt like a baby lamb at the 4-H fair being shown around. Um, and that's kind of the, the routine that I, I built on um, in that class. Uh, that's fantastic. So I didn't, I didn't catch that from the article. So, cause I've, I've thought about trying to do it myself but i'm petrified and so there are actually classes out there which is fantastic i i have a couple books um but it's it's not the same because you know you need to be able to deliver it in front of other people okay so anyone that's listening they have classes for this stuff so are you are you still performing so unfortunately you know i had every intention of keeping up with this but a couple of things that kind of came up slash crossed my mind. Um, so the other thing about the comedy world is it's very competitive. And what you essentially do when you're young and starting out is you look for open mics. These tend to be probably more common in bigger cities and small cities, but they can happen at coffee shops. They can happen, you know, at a dive bar. Um, but essentially the way you get on the open mic is by bringing people you know and bringing them to the show. And if you show up and you're like, yeah, these are the eight people I brought and maybe you've brought the most, you know, you're going to get prioritized on that open mic because you're bringing customers to the venue. And being a Sacramento transplant, you know, most of my friends are people I work with. I don't have a deep network of people that are my number one fan club. 
And so that part kind of intimidated me because I generally don't like to invite people from work because sometimes humor can get a little inappropriate, especially in our day and age. You have to be a little out there to kind of shock and awe people. You can't be too safe. Otherwise, it's just not funny these days. And additionally, later that year, I decided to study for my GRE and go back to grad school. And I started that last August. And that really cut into my time where I didn't have time for another class. But I hope once my grad school is over in August of 2019 that I'll get back into it and I probably want to take an improv class. I don't have much interest in improv, but everyone has told me that an improv class would improve my stand-up. So I'm going to take their word for it. Yeah, it's it's one of my personal weaknesses is that I have to think things through. So I've thought about improv because I want to train myself to be better on my feet, to be able to um, take information, process it quickly, and then, you know, speak, speak back. Hmm. And and so I've thought of that as well. I'm going to jump into your article in a second, but how many performances did you end up doing? So outside of essentially performing every week in my class, I really only did one actual performance in front of an audience. They have a comedy club at the SAC Comedy Spot. And so it was a really nice way to kind of ease into it because our whole class performed that night. And you got the experience of looking for the red light when you're blinded by the stage lights that tell you when to stop. Um, But it was a really great experience. And I still keep in touch with my teacher. And he does a really fun podcast here in town that's recorded that I go to every now and then. And so just the one time, but I think it was a great experience and I highly recommend it for anyone, no matter how nervous it might sound to you. It was a great experience overall. And, and I think you think, I think you think it made you a better professional, uh, which is why you wrote the article. So you decided you saw the connection and, you know, you went through this process and you realized that, on your day-to-day basis, if you took some of the things that you learned from doing stand-up, you could do better in your day job. So let's let's jump into those. You you basically broke it out into four categories of improvement that you saw. The first one was called allow your ideas to evolve. So can you describe what you meant by, by writing that particular section? Yeah. So when I did my routine, one piece of feedback that I got from an audience member was that my jokes were funny. It was a cute story. Uh, It was entertaining, but my jokes need to go a little bit deeper. They were kind of surface level. Even though I, I wove a story together, I didn't really dig into any particular joke. And if you watch a lot of comedy, you'll, you probably notice that a lot of comedians, you know, they'll make a joke and then They'll build on it and build on it and build on it. And you just can't believe like where they took a joke and how much funnier it kept getting, even though it was initially pretty funny, even just weaving together certain things. And then next thing you know, they end up finding their way back to that punchline towards the end. And that was something I hadn't quite done with my routine because I was just working on getting, you know, the enough laughs and making it interesting and building as much meat into it as I could. And I think this applies directly to data because in my job as an analyst, it's largely dependent on your curiosity. I can't just look up the line of business and see, oh, our loss ratio is 60%. 
cool, here you go, good to know. I need to dig deeper, figure out what that 60% means. Is that due to recent trends or a consistent trend over time? Is that driven by a certain class code, a certain agency or insured or a handful of nasty claims that hit the books? Were the losses on accounts that fit our appetite? Do we want to adjust our appetite? Are we comfortable with what else is on the books that might continue this trend? Why are the good accounts with low loss ratio performing better, etc.? It's not just enough to stay surface level and you know, the same with a joke that may not be that funny in itself. My data needs depth, just like my humor needs depth. No, that's the, that that part really stood out to me. Um, I, I think it goes beyond data. I think it's that's a helpful piece of advice for basically anything that you're doing in business is don't don't stop at the first uh, you know the first answer. Dig deeper. Don't stay shallow. Uh, the deeper you go, the more valuable you can become both to your company or to your customer or whatever. So I, I, re- I really like that because I just think it goes, it goes well beyond uh, that. Actually, I think all of, you, all of these actually go well beyond data. But uh, your, your second part, your second category was let your audience help you. I know that's something that I've struggled with um, when, as I read the specific example that you gave. But yeah, how, what does that mean and how do you do that? How do you let your audience help you? Yeah, much of data analytics is knowing your audience. Uh, I think that's true kind of no matter where you work in the business world. Same way you need to know your audience in comedy. Um, before I dig into a project, I like to know, you know who is asking for the data, who requested the data, and what are they hoping to find out or know from the data. This helps me know, can our data even answer their question? Will they be able to make the conclusions they hope to make off of what we can give them? And what do they hope to use the data for? I don't know these things, and I just, if I don't know these things and I just dive down into the data, I might put something together that doesn't look at the characteristics or nuances that could be useful for them. If I know that they want to use the data to have a targeted conversation with their key agents, that's different than if they're hoping to use this data to go directly to staff and change our appetite guidelines, or if they want to use this data to help assist underwriters in their risk analysis. That's different than if they're trying to use my data to answer a question being asked of them from higher up executives. Um, you know, I learned this lesson in my routine because I wasn't trying to ad lib or you know get too improvis- improvisational. But I had a moment where I felt like one of my jokes didn't really land how I wanted it to. And in that pause, um, it just kind of came out of my mouth. And it wasn't even that big of a joke. You know, I made the comment about, you know, having offering the guy like that he can like McDonald's, he can have it your way or you can have it your way. And I didn't realize at the time that I'd actually said like the Burger King slogan. And that was what made it so funny to him. And it wasn't. I wasn't even intending to be necessarily super funny, just kind of killing that awkward space when I realized that a joke didn't land how I wanted it to. And it was completely accidental that I swooped and swapped my slogans. So for me learning that, oh, that was really funny to him, not so much, you know, the jokes that I thought were super funny or the funniest part of my act. Um, Another way this ties in is that 
I'll also learn a lot when I'm presenting my findings to a wider group. You know, as much as I try to get to know my audience beforehand, there's usually a few key players that requested what I pulled, and then I'm presenting in a larger meeting where there's a bigger audience that would benefit from that information, but they weren't the original requester. And I'll learn from them the things that they find really interesting or useful or the things that they want me to dig deeper into where they might find a particular slide super interesting and say, we need to share this broadly, or I want to know more about this information. And you don't learn that until you're up in front of them and you're showing them the data and you learn what's important to them and what stands out to them because they're coming from their background in, in the, the company and what they see and you, you can't read their mind to know what is gonna jump out to them. So I find that very beneficial. It often leads to deeper analysis and next steps as far as what we're gonna look into further. And so additionally, many people are not entirely comfortable with data. And when you're trying to present the data in a way that anyone can use, even if they don't love numbers, you have to carefully craft your message and deliver it in a way that is valuable for them and sparks their curiosity as well. Yeah, that's a very important lesson. I have a question about that space and time, that gap where you plant a joke and you don't get anywhere close to the response that you were expecting. To me, that would be like when I cave. What do they teach you in class when, when that happens? How do you, because that can happen in the business world too, where you, you, know, you say the wrong thing or you say something and it doesn't get the response that you're expecting. How do you recover from that? Yeah, there's a couple options. One thing to do is you just continue on, like pretend like nothing happened, all right, on to the next joke, like, you know, let's keep it moving. If your whole routine is going that way, though, if you just keep doing that, you're going to kind of miss the entire mark. So one thing that they offered is sometimes you can fall flat because maybe your your jokes are, I don't want to say mean, but some people get up there and they'll kind of rip on a particular group or person. And one of the main things you have to remember and add into your routine is be as self-deprecating as possible because if you're not doing a heavy amount of your own self-deprecation, then you just look like, you know, kind of an ass. I don't know if I can say that on here. So you need to be self-deprecating enough. You don't sound like a jerk and you're not just tearing into people like you're an arrogant prick, I guess. And so one thing you can do is pivot to something self-deprecating or make a joke about um, you know, you'll notice comedians will say, oh, you laughed at this, but got nothing for this. Okay. You know, and kind of call the audience out. Um, for me, I tend to fall into just laughing at my own joke that nobody else thought was as funny. And I, I know you're typically not supposed to laugh at your own jokes, but sometimes I think a little bit of nervous laughter is okay because the audience knows you're nervous and you're showing a little bit of vulnerability and maybe your own little nervous laugh is funny in itself. Um, I think at the moment I didn't have enough brain power to really pivot and plan, you know, my reaction. I just had a quick five minutes and I just kind of kept going through my routine. And I think that extra joke I threw in there was just more subconscious and it just came out. So. Yeah, I, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I used to watch Johnny Carson when I was little. And uh, I thought Johnny Carson's jokes mostly bombed 
but he would he always like he'd throw out that joke and no one would really laugh and then he'd kind of look out of the corner of his eyes basically saying what's wrong with you people and the look got the laughs the the you know he bombed <laughs> and he'd give the look and he'd get a laugh from that so I used to love that. I used to love how, uh, you know, comedians could just quickly bounce back and show no fear uh, when doing that. So, so that's, that's really good advice. So your, your first point was to allow your ideas to evolve. Then it was to let your audience help you. Your third category um, of how you were able to connect stand up with what you do day to day in data analytics was to find your own style. Why is authenticity important? Authenticity is, you know, probably key. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned working in my role. Um, But I think it's key no matter where you work for the pure fact that if you don't have the ability to be authentic in your true self, you're probably not going to be very happy in your job. Uh, Everyone in data analytics has their own perspective and set of skills and their own style and their own strengths. You know, some people are really good at coding SQL or digging into the data and querying. Others are better at the actual data analysis piece and looking at what the data trends tell you. Some people are very good at data visualization, et cetera, and maybe a cocktail of a mixture of things. But we're not, none of us are the same. And I know, for example, my background in marketing gives me a strong skill set in displaying the data in communicating the data, and not everyone has that same strength or skill. I also know that I have learned techniques and methods in grad school that are not commonly used on my team, and if I stuck to just what was previously done or what others did, I probably wouldn't thrive and probably would not enjoy my job, and they may miss out on methods that they haven't heard of before. And the same would be true if the opposite were to occur and everyone had to do their research or presentations like me, then I wouldn't learn new methods from them. You know, I think one of the biggest problems in the workplace today is groupthink. And the best way to battle this phenomenon of groupthink and keep it out of the workplace and keep it from taking over your team or your company culture is to encourage everyone to bring their fullest and most authentic self to work every day. Yeah, that's very true. And plus, if you're, if you're building your career, how do you differentiate yourself if you look and do and act just like everybody else? So uh, finding your own style is incredibly important. And then your final category is the 15 second rule, which I'd never heard of, uh, never thought of it this way. I just, I guess kind of for every presentation that I did, I just kind of did it. And now that I look back, I can see why this would be so valuable. So um, the 15 second rule, why is that important? So within comedy, you know, in my class, they really taught us that we need to shoot for getting a laugh from our audience every 15 seconds, because if you're not laughing that much, it's going to be uncomfortable for the audience and they're expecting more laughter than that. Um, And I definitely think it closely related to being concise uh, and making sure what you're saying and what you're sharing is relevant and impactful in the workplace. Uh, No one likes a presentation that runs way longer than it needs to or being in a meeting that they feel like they don't need to be in. We're all very busy and have short attention spans thanks to, you know, instant gratification that we get from our electronic devices and the speed with which we can access nearly any piece of information we could want in seconds. 
And I don't know if I'm always able to live up to this 15 second rule in my presentations, because sometimes you have to go a little slower if you're sharing something complex or controversial. But um, overall, I think it's a good rule of thumb or something to strive for in that you're making sure that your content is important and impactful and every slide or every point you're making is there for a reason and adds value to the overall message you're trying to convey. I agree. I agree completely. You, you ended your article with one of my favorite quotes, be so good they can't ignore you. I actually wrote a uh, book review, a, a blog article on uh, that specific book, but that was a quote from Steve Martin when he was uh, asked for advice uh, on how someone, it may have been comedy, but it was basically, uh, you know, uh, he was giving advice or he was basically discussing his career. Like, how did he get to where he was? What, what, what was the, the key to that? And he was basically like, be so good that they, they can't ignore you. Uh, where did, did you happen to hear that quote because Steve Martin was a comedian or how did, how did, you, how did you put that into your article? Yeah, I definitely think it fell into my theme. Um, I love Steve Martin, but I also love that quote. You know, I think that with anyone who works kind of in tech or data or I guess a lot of professions, sometimes there's this like creeping in, you know, fear of like imposter syndrome. I don't know if you've heard that before. Like I'm not yes. yeah. good enough or I'm not smart enough or I don't know enough because I really feel with data analytics especially there's always more you could learn. There's always more coming around the bend. There's a new language or, oh, you know, SQL? Well, now you need to know Python probably more than SQL or but can you do machine learning or what about, you know, neural networks? It's just kind of never ending. And I think because of that breakneck speed, it can make a lot of people fall into that imposter syndrome. Like, I don't know enough about this. And at the end of the day, the best thing you can do is just be very good at your job. And, you know, I don't even need to know machine learning for my job, but I feel inadequate because I'm not as more, more of an expert in machine learning, you know, and you can't let that creep in. You have to focus on what your job is and what they need from you and executing that well and being essentially, like the quote says, so good that they can't ignore you. Yep, yep. You you said that you had a marketing background. I know that you did underwriting, and now you're doing data analytics. How how did you move from from one to the other? So a lot of it was I don't want to say luck because that sounds a little too random and you know serendipitous, but um, it wasn't really part of my plan. You know, I had been working as a commercial underwriter for two years and figured that I needed to get at least another year for anyone to look at my resume and take my underwriting experience seriously and think that I had done it long enough to know what I was doing because underwriting is very complex. But then, you know, each year I would set my priorities that I wanted to accomplish that year. And I even put on there, you know, like later in the year, start looking for your next opportunity and build towards you know, making sure you have the skills for that job and you're ready. But then somebody left our product team, one of the analysts, and those jobs don't come open very often. And I thought that, you know, I might get laughed at for applying. <laughs> they might wonder what I'm doing, but I have to go for it because these opportunities don't come up very often. At the very least, I'll start the conversation. I'll get some feedback on what I might need to work on to be prepared when when my turn comes and when it's my time 
to get my next job. But I ended up getting the job. So it really worked out. And, um, you know, I'm really thankful for that and, and kind of where my path took me. And I basically have three pieces of advice around this for people who want to, you know, maybe make the same move in their career. One is don't get caught up on timelines. You know, I could have gotten caught up on my three-year mark and not applied at all because I didn't think I was ready. Um, you know, don't tell yourself no on certain things. Go for it and let someone else kind of tell you no if, it, if it's not right for you. I mean, unless your gut is really saying no, but if your heart and your gut are saying yes and you're just nervous you're going to get a no, like you should just go for it and put the timelines away because life isn't a timeline. You can't perfectly plan things and you don't know when you're going to get a certain opportunity again or if it's going to come up at all. And don't be afraid of something you don't know. When I applied for my current role, we got a homework assignment, so to speak, that we had to do during the interview process and present on a piece of data. And I literally Googled my way through the entire thing, because even though I was a finance major, there was a lot of Excel functions I had not used before and things I didn't really know how to do. And I had to Google my whole way through it, but that didn't stop me from getting the job. That didn't stop me from being able to do it. Um, you know, I have a friend that works at Lyft in San Francisco, and I often ask him how he's able to keep up with the breakneck pace of change in technology, especially in the Bay where everyone is on the cutting edge and they expect you to be on the cutting edge. And he said that he felt like he has estimated that most people he works with on his team spend about 80% of their time Googling things, and that's normal. So don't be afraid to Google what you don't know and learn something new to gain the skills you need for a job you want. And then lastly, follow your passion. It sounds cliche, but if there's something that you are doing in your free time, uh, in this case, I had started doing some data MOOCs online, uh, maybe that's a job you should pursue. And if you can find the opportunity to pivot within your own company, that is often the path of least resistance because your company already knows you and hopefully you have sponsors who can vouch for you and they will be more likely to give you a chance at something you haven't done before. Whereas if you're trying to pivot into a new career or a new job outside of your current employer, it can be much more difficult externally trying to get through all the HR algorithms and have a recruiter give you a chance when you're pivoting into something you don't have experience in. So I know that because I did it internally at Nationwide, I had a much higher chance of making it happen, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely great advice. Um, I, I can't stress enough your point number two. Um, I, I think the proudest accomplishment I've had in my professional career was um, I, built, I built an Excel tool that got put into a major piece of software and there was a lot of VBA code in the background and I had known a little and was teaching myself rapidly, but there were, um, you know, speed bumps and hurdles that I kept bumping into and you'd be surprised how often I would say more than 99% of the time it was that often I would start typing the question and Google would finish it for me. It, it was so it's like this must have been the same kind of problem that a lot of other um, software developers were having at that time and you know I, I got to the point where I didn't have to memorize a lot of the code or anything like that I could just copy and paste from someone else on how they do it how they did it and 
I, I, I can't agree more. Like it just, we have, we have a device on our fingertips that has, that has the world's information on it. Why struggle if, yeah. if you don't need to? So yeah. that is, that is uh, excellent advice. I'll make sure I highlight that in the, in the show notes. Um, so to, to step into a more uh, personal part of the interview, I try to ask everyone that I talk to because uh, I'm be, I'm become a productivity nut just uh, because of my inability my inability to stay productive. I'm trying to figure out how everyone else is doing it. How do you do it, and what tools or techniques do you use to try to stay productive? So it's really nothing complex, and maybe that's why it works for me. But essentially, two things like have to function for me. I need to make sure my calendar is up to date, not just my work calendar, but I actually keep an old fashioned like agenda, like a paper agenda, um, mainly because I don't like to merge digitally my calendars. Like I don't really want my personal stuff on my work and I don't want my work on my personal. So I can put that all on my paper copy. And if I'm out with a friend and we decide at brunch that we're going to do something, I've got my paper calendar at the ready, essentially. That helps me function between school, work, and personal, and women and data. I've got a lot going on, so that keeps me sane. And additionally, I use an old-fashioned to-do list, mainly because I, otherwise I'll just forget things. And I recently read in a book a really good tip about having like a piece of paper near your bed at night if there's something that you remember when you're about to go to bed that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't forget to do this, or you know, you're just going to keep thinking about that as you're trying to go to sleep. You can put it down on a piece of paper and then just forget about it and then just go to sleep. And then that way you don't have to keep swirling around with these things you have to do and you can get a real restful sleep. And then when you wake up, it's on your sheet of paper um, and you're you're not going to forget when you wake up. So I think those two things are key for me. And you're not alone. I've now interviewed several people that have gone old school when it comes to productivity. You know, it's just, uh, I think the technology is becoming overwhelming. Maybe maybe that's my problem as well. The technology is becoming overwhelming and you don't know what to use or how to use it or constantly flipping back and forth. And I see more and more people going back to just old school methods, old school calendars and, and, and things of that nature, uh, just writing things down. Um, maybe, maybe that's the best technology we'll ever get, uh, when it comes to productivity. So thank you for sharing that. And we end every interview asking about books. We have an audience that loves books. Uh, we're going to be building a database of all of these recommendations. Um, what books have you read that you've found to be influential in both and or both, uh, personal, uh, business career? So I picked three books. Hopefully that's not too many, but I love to read. Um, one book that really surprised me is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life by Russ Roberts. And, you know, the cover of it has like a bust of Adam Smith in yellow wearing like some Ray-Bans. And the title kind kind of sounds like something written for Teen Vogue. But it actually is a phenomenal book. And basically Russ Roberts takes the nuggets out of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, which was written in the 1700s, and makes it accessible and relevant today in a digestible format. Uh, So that book is really awesome. It just explains kind of more detail how people work and think and what makes us happy and what motivates us. Um, But I love that book. Um, The second one 
is called Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. Essentially, this book talks about the forecasting study that was conducted in 2005 to figure out how the CIA could make better predictions after they mistakenly thought that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And it talks about how most expert predictions are only slightly better than chance and why that is. Uh, it's a super fascinating book for anyone that works in data and subsequently chasing the elusive practice of predictive analytics. I'm not a forecaster, but I just found the whole book very interesting and fascinating. And I think it'll help anyone working in data kind of make sure that they're coming at their data from the right perspective. And then lastly, one of my favorite books from last year that I also think is really key if you work in data or you're interested in working in data or anyone really was called Weapons of Mass Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. Uh, this book was powerful because it talks about the danger of how we use data today. You know, the great thing is we have a lot of data. We're building algorithms. We're trying to do use it for good and make things better. But in some cases, we're not. You know, she highlights the data on how teachers are getting ranked and rated for standardized test performance. And she talks about how they're using data to determine length of prison sentence and certain things. And she basically compares like the time we're living in today as the time when it was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You know, in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you had harsh working conditions, minimal labor laws, child labor was rampant. Uh, but we made laws to make sure that work environments were safe. We created a standard 40-hour work week and outlawed child labor. Today, we need to do much of the same work to make sure that our algorithms and the data we're using and what we're building are not harmful and we're not building in bias and we're not creating feedback loops that produce the outcome we're attempting to measure but rather encourage those things and I thought it was just a really really important book so those were probably the three books that I would highlight. Those are fantastic I, I haven't read uh, Weapons of Math, Math Destruction so uh, I'll, I'll make sure I get all three on the show notes. Uh, Russ Roberts, I've been a fan of for years. He has, he might have the longest running economics podcast ever. Um, I think it's going on like 15 or 20 years. Um, you can go, uh, get, I mean, he's, he's fantastic. He's, he's got a good podcast. I'll make sure I put the link up for that. And, uh, super forecasting. I actually bumped into Dan Gardner, uh, at the Bermuda airport and we were, as we were going through security. Oh, wow we kept bumping into each other. So every time I turned the corner, I would make sure I had another question ready for him so that I could, uh, cause we were like, we were already talking. So I felt stupid um, that we just kept bumping into each other. So <laughs> as we passed, I would start thinking of my next question, knowing that I, I would turn the corner and bump into him again. And he was, he was a real gentleman. Uh, he was very patient with me as I, I probably ended up asking him like 10 questions about the book. So uh, those those are fantastic choices. Uh, I will make sure I put all of those in the show notes. And as as well as your article, Avalyn, um, if someone wanted to reach you, how uh -huh. would they do that? You know, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way as of right now, just because, um, you know, I always feel like I lose contacts or people's emails, you know, they change jobs or who knows what. Um, if you're having trouble on LinkedIn, like if we're not 
a close enough connection. I'm also on Twitter and you should be able to message me there. Uh, it's just at Avalyn Fisher. Um, so really either one of those I think would work if someone wants to reach out and if it's necessary to continue over email, then I can provide my email on those channels as well. Once we, once we connect. Fantastic. Uh, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your personal story uh, with us. Uh, uh, my guest this week has been Avalyn Fisher. Avalyn, thank you sh- so much for sharing your story again. Hi, thank you.